0: Hello, and welcome to Locked on Vikings. I'm your host, I'm your pal, I'm the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can follow me on Twitter at NFL. you can follow the show at Locked on Vikings, and we have quite a bit to talk about here in the last show of the week, so let's get right into it. Uh, we are going to talk about the wildcard weekend games for most of the show, but first we have a little bit of news to cover. Uh, the Vikings are still searching for an offensive coordinator. They did not just immediately anoint Kevin Stefanski with the full-time role. They didn't just immediately strip that interim off of his position. And that kind of makes sense, right? He only coordinated for three games. There was nothing particularly impressive about any of them when you take into context, you know, strength of opponent and all that. They weren't so bad as to like immediately not give him the job. I think he's still probably the odds-on favorite to get it eventually, but he didn't do well enough to absolve the Vikings of their responsibility to do their due diligence. And part of that due diligence is looking around at the candidates around the league. So a lot of people have been talking about Adam Gase as a possible offensive coordinator. Uh, I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. I haven't really looked too deeply into Adam Gase. I would if he if he became a more often mentioned candidate. But the big one that came out today that caused a lot of discussion on Twitter and Reddit in the community was Hugh Jackson. Now, it makes sense that the Vikings would talk to Hugh Jackson, and it's just talks. It's just an interview, maybe. It's not even confirmed that the Vikings are bringing him in for an interview. He's just a name that's getting some whispers and some rumblings. Um, But it makes sense that that would happen because Mike Zimmer and Hugh Jackson have a really good relationship going back to their days together in Cincinnati. Now, Hugh Jackson has also been kind of in the mix for some of the head coaching opportunities that have opened up around the league, which is really surprising to me considering his track record as a head coach and and just how radioactive he is right now after his stint in Cleveland. So there's a chance that the Vikings, like, don't even get a shot at him for the offensive coordinator position. And there's an even better chance that they just go with Stefanski anyways, and none of this matters. But it's kind of a scary moment because Hugh Jackson is just so toxic and so radioactive that if the Vikings were to turn to that guy right now, just because Mike Zimmer knows him, it would kind of send a signal to the players and to the fans that now we're not interested in getting better. We're just interested in moving back to what our curmudgeon old head coach is comfortable with. And I think it would be a sign of some really dark days to come for a regime in Zimmer and Spielman that have been, like, largely successful, especially relative to their peers, where the lowest moments of their time here, the team's been, like, 500, and at the highest moments, they've been Super Bowl contenders. It would really signal a turn in a different direction for the franchise, and I don't think it's one that that anybody in Minnesota, fans or otherwise, can really talk themselves into being excited about. You know, with Hugh Jackson in Cleveland, I think, you know, people can kind of chalk that up to, okay, yeah, he's a bad head coach, right? Nobody's going to argue that Hugh Jackson is a good head coach. Actually, some people are, and I think that's hilarious, but I don't really need to give that argument any mind. He won, like, three games there over three years. It was abhorrent but as an offensive coordinator he does have a little bit better of a reputation and i think that's his probably most likely landing spot in the nfl is back to offensive coordinator somewhere i'd actually be pretty surprised if someone hired him as a head coach after that cleveland stint uh, i'm i'm shocked that he's even getting interviews so as an offensive coordinator his like last moment was in cincinnati in 2015 and that was a season where they had Andy Dalton in the MVP race. They had A.J. Green breaking out. They had Mo and Marvin Jones, both of whom are thriving in their new homes that they've gone to since then. He had a top-shelf offensive line, and his scheme was really, like, lauded as something that works in today's NFL, and it used a lot of concepts that people were copying at the time. And the Bengals kind of fell apart after that, after Hugh Jackson left, and people kind of saw, like, in 2016, this regression And they thought, oh, wow, Hugh Jackson left the Bengals and they got so much worse. So his reputation really skyrocketed from there. And then everything that happened in Cleveland happened and here we are. But I think it's important to kind of look at that 2015 season, which is really his only saving grace in reputation right now, and ask ourselves, is this really because of Hugh Jackson? In hindsight, if you took a team with... Andy Dalton, who I guess is as decent as decent gets, right? But give that guy, AJ Green, Mosinu, Marvin Jones, and an offensive line that can protect him all the time, and a pretty good uh, running back duo in Gio Bernard and Jeremy Hill, like that's an offense that's going to succeed whether or not your offensive coordinator is that good. So long as he's not doing things that are like colossally stupid, That offense is going to succeed. So I don't know how much credit I want to give Hugh Jackson for being able to make, you know, a decent meal out of top shelf ingredients. If those talks get more serious, we'll dive more into Hugh Jackson as a possible offensive coordinator. But for now, we're going to move on to another thing that's happening around the league, which is all of this Antonio Brown brown drama. So over this week, Antonio Brown apparently requested a trade, not demanded, which is different. Requested a trade from the Steelers, basically saying I'm sick of the team. There's all kinds of locker room drama. There's been a lot going on in the Pittsburgh locker room that has kind of been leaking out here and there. So we as fans, we we've been getting this idea that like Things keep happening in Pittsburgh, and coming off of a season where you know they tied a divisional rival and barely didn't make the playoffs despite Super Bowl aspirations, I kind of feel sympathetic to that situation. I, I mean, imagine if the Vikings had fights on the sideline like, like, like what happened in the Week 17 game all the time, and then you got you know people coming out saying, "Oh, you know Stephon Diggs, he hates Kirk Cousins," and imagine how livid we'd be as a fan base. It's really interesting to watch all of that unfold. And I I guess I'm really glad that as Vikings fans, we get to enjoy a pretty peaceful culture. I mean, I think Sheldon Richardson, one of the players who was known as like a locker room cancer and a diva and a guy who couldn't get along with anybody, is thriving here personally and on the field. And I think that, like, speaks really highly to the culture that we have. I mean, guys like Everson Griffin and Linvald Joseph and, you know, Daniil Hunter, like, being around those guys all the time, he's really enjoying himself. And I think that's true everywhere in the locker room. Everybody likes being around Diggs and Thielen. Kirk Cousins is still, I think he's still kind of trying to fit in because he's still only been here for a year. But, you know, on the whole, people just like being here. And I I think we would have a lot more reason to try to overhaul the entire team if things were going more like they're going in Pittsburgh right now. So that's going to do it for news. Uh, We are going to go take a quick break, and when we come back, we will discuss each and every one of the wildcard Weekend games that are going to come up. After all, we're all football fans, even though we can't watch our own team. We're all going to still enjoy watching the playoffs, right? Uh, And we're going to sprinkle in some of the bold predictions from you guys as we get to them, so I will see you guys in a minute. And We are back. So we are gonna do this uh, AFC to NFC. So let's start with the AFC and the first game We are going to talk about today is The Houston Texans and Indianapolis Colts game That's going to be the third time these teams meet because they're in the same division and uh, It's gonna be really exciting to watch the two games between these teams before Really went in different directions and both the teams like look a lot different between the first meeting and the second meeting so I think the storyline of the game that you're going to hear from the broadcast and from everybody else breaking this down in the the days leading up to the game is this kind of duel between T.Y. Hilton and uh, DeAndre Hopkins, and these are two guys who really are on fire. T.Y. Hilton especially uh, really destroyed Houston in both of their meetings. He was able to put up like 314 yards. He had over four yards per route run. Now, yards per route run, it's a stat I've talked about a lot on here, but real quick, is just taking all of the... Plays where you ran a route, passing plays where you were, like, eligible to catch the ball, and divide by how many yards you got. And it turns out to be a really stable stat. Essentially, the point of it is to punish a wide receiver when they don't get targeted because that kind of insinuates that you didn't get separation. And it turns out that it does, like, a really good job of predicting not only future yards per route run, but it actually does a great job of predicting, like, future fantasy points and, you know, touchdowns and receptions and stuff. Just does a really good job of telling you, is this guy good and is he going to continue to be good? T.Y. Hilton has over four. That is an obscene number. That's actually, like, impossible to sustain over an entire season. So the fact that he is, like, breaking charts in the two games he played against uh, the Houston Texans is pretty absurd. So the Texans are going to have to work really hard to stop him. Now, T.Y. Hilton's a slot receiver, which means he lines up, not on the outside where you usually see receivers, he lines up a little bit... Inside those guys, between, like, the offensive line, the tight end, that whole contraption, and, like, the typical outside receiver, he lines up there a lot. Now, in both of these meetings, Houston has had different slot corners that have been primarily responsible for covering T.Y. Hilton— uh, Aaron Colvin was on him a lot for one of the games and Kareem Jackson was on him a lot for the other one. Neither of them did a great job. Kareem Jackson is a better uh, corner, slot corner. He's their starter, but he's been hurt a lot throughout the season. So I think finding a way to stop T.Y. Hilton, getting an extra safety on there, finding, you know, used here Matthew, that's going to be critical if Houston wants to beat Indianapolis this time. Now, one of the biggest storylines for the Colts is their fixed offensive line. They've gotten really good play out of their tackles. They've gotten better play out of Ryan Kelly. They've gotten unbelievable play out of their sixth overall rookie, Quentin Nelson, which everybody kind of saw coming. He was really an otherworldly prospect. And Houston has like J.J. Watt and Jadeveon Clowney. So getting pressure on Andrew Luck is gonna be kind of one of the coolest storylines in this game. Whoever's winning in that regard... Uh, between, you know, the the Houston really excellent superstar-filled defensive line versus this retooled fixed Colts offensive line. Whoever's winning that battle, I think wins this game. Now, with uh, DeAndre Hopkins, he, in both of the meetings uh, that these teams have already had, has had one 169-yard outing and one 36-yard outing. Now, Houston is pretty good about getting uh, DeAndre Hopkins on different players. He's matched up against like a whole bunch of different Colts defenders. And some of that's kind of scheme, like what the Vikings do. Sometimes they just allow the other team to dictate the matchup in exchange for some simplicity. And that lets the defenders play a lot better. So DeAndre Hopkins will probably kind of get free reign again to like go up against whoever the coaches want him to go up against and the only Colts player that has really had a prayer of stopping DeAndre Hopkins is their cornerback Pierre Desir. If DeAndre Hopkins is to have another successful game, I think it's going to be up to Houston to get him on linebackers and get him on safeties and get him on guys that are like not usually used to stop a guy like DeAndre Hopkins. So last note on this game before we move on, uh, I have a kind of sleeper pick for this one, and it's uh, Kimoko Toure. In the last two games, he's actually led both teams in pressures uh, in both of the last two meetings. I think he just has the the Texans number. So I think even as a player that is uh, not like a household name on the defensive line, I think he might have more of an impact uh, than you'd think. And then obviously I just want to touch real quickly on the quarterback matchup. Both of these guys have actually been, uh, pretty even as, as things go. And and I think whichever one has a better game probably will win the game. I know that's not like high level analysis. Whoever has the better quarterback play will win the game. Uh, but I really don't know who that's going to be. So picking this game, I'm going to pick Indy. Uh, I think that they're just a little hotter right now, and they're kind of coming in guns a-blazing. I think they've really figured out a lot of the issues that held them back earlier in the season, and I think a lot of the key moments of this matchup that I mentioned lean in their direction. So moving on, we have the other AFC game, the Chargers versus the Ravens. This is a rematch. This happened a couple weeks ago. Um, and to start this one, I just want to, like, explain the Ravens. I've Talked about them a couple other times on the show because I'm fascinated with them. But Brett Coleman actually did a great video previewing the first Chargers Ravens game, uh, predicting that the Chargers would like undress the Ravens. It didn't happen, but it was great analysis of how the Ravens work. So basically, the Ravens have one play and they call it over and over and over again. Um, Lamar Jackson has this like insane play action rate in the Chargers game specifically. He ran play action 53% of the time, which is unbelievable. Like teams just don't do that. And I love it. But basically the Ravens have like one play and they run it over and over and it has like a bunch of reads in it. It's like kind of like a flow chart. If you see the defensive end go this way, do that. If you see him go that way, do this. If You know, then look at the running back, if he's covered throw to him, if he's not, do something else, then look at the tight end and blah, blah, blah. It makes for a very consistent read for Lamar Jackson, and as a young quarterback, fresh out of college, it's really important to him. And it also allows him very often to use what he's best at, which is running. It allows him to pass the ball plenty of the time as well, and Lamar Jackson is fine at that. He, he's not like somebody like, you know, Josh Allen or like the Christian Ponders of old that could run but not throw. He can throw fine, but using his legs often is like a way for them to win. So for the Chargers to stop that, what they have to do is be very, very disciplined in what they do. That's how you stop option play. If you think about, like, a read option, and I'm gonna go pretty far into the weeds here, a a read option basically is a read of an unblocked defensive player. So usually that's a defensive end, say like Daniil Hunter. You will purposefully not block him. You'll tell your offensive line, block everybody else, that's really easy when you don't have to worry about Daniil Hunter, and we're not gonna block him. And we are either going to hand this ball off to the running back, or the quarterback's gonna keep it. And whichever guy he runs towards, I'm giving it to the other guy. That's roughly what option play is. Now, the Ravens added a lot more layers to that. So what you have to do as a defense to stop that is basically tell your defensive end to do the same thing every time. When you see that play happening, always just go at the running back. And that means that it's always going to be a quarterback run to the other side. And when you know that it's always going to be a quarterback run to the other side, it's a lot easier to deal with. Now, you can have a linebacker that comes and fills his gap, and you can have a quarter a cornerback that comes in and runs support. And if everybody does their job very cleanly, you'll be able to stop that play most of the time. The Chargers didn't do uh, that excellent of a job at this. They did manage to stifle the Ravens a little bit. It was kind of a weird rainy day. Um, But that's kind of what it's going to come down to on that side of the ball. And on the other side of the ball, the first meeting between these guys was defined by pressure. There were 23 pressured plays for Phillip Rivers. It was a really pretty uh, rough game for him. Uh, And they actually logged 31 pressures in 23 plays, which means there were a lot of plays where multiple people were credited with a pressure. Uh, The Chargers offensive line got completely worked In the first matchup between these teams, mostly from the right side, 11 of those 23 pressured plays were credited to right side offensive linemen, Um, and a lot of the pressures were credited to Terrell Suggs and other guys rushing from that side. So I think if you are the Chargers, you get Hunter, Hunter Henry back in this game, which is really interesting. I would maybe then use, like, Antonio Gates or some of your, like, lesser receiving threat guys. You know, Gates is not the tight end he once was. Use them in in protection. Help out that right side. Learn a lesson from what happened to you in Week 16, and you've got a chance. Personally, I think the Ravens are going to take this game. Huge fan of what they're doing, and uh, as good as the Chargers are, and they're really, really good, it's hard to win on the road in the playoffs, and especially when you are having problems like what they had in the first matchup. Uh, I don't know if the Chargers have necessarily the flexibility to change what they do in a way that can make the game go differently. So I'm going to take the Ravens in this one. So that does it for the AFC. Uh, We are going to move into the NFC, but we're going to take a quick break first. See you in a minute. And we are back. So let's move on to the NFC. And we're going to start there in Dallas, where the Seattle Seahawks are going to come to town again. So uh, let's start this one by talking about the quarterbacks. These are two guys that are kind of similar in vibe, right? They're both quarterbacks who can run around but are also good at throwing, and that presents the same problem to either defense. But I don't know if we're going to see a lot of that in this game because both— teams have been really, really good at protecting the quarterback. Uh, Seattle has been surprisingly good at it, and we talked a lot about it uh, when we were previewing the Seattle game in the inaugural episode of this iteration of Locked On. But, you know, Dallas is also famous for an offensive line that while they've been a little bit banged up this year, they've actually been able to pull it together and do pretty well in the last few games. Now, for this, I didn't look at their previous matchup like I did with the other two games because that happened in week three and both teams have changed a lot since then. You know, Seattle has worked out a lot of issues. Dallas acquired Amari Cooper and that matters a lot. Um, And speaking of Amari Cooper, in the last six games, he... And Doug Baldwin and Tyler Lockett have been white-hot. They both are averaging over two yards per route run, which is a really an elite level. Anything over two, you can pretty much call elite play. And on the other hand, looking specifically at Byron Jones, who's going to be tasked with handling that dynamic duo of Lockett and Baldwin, he's been averaging 1.06 yards allowed per cover snap, which is the same stat, but just on the other side for cornerbacks. So, Byron Jones, while he's had an excellent season, and I don't want to take away from him, he's pro Bowl and he deserves it, he's been in a little bit of a rougher spot in the last few games. He's had some really amazing moments, and he's still a very good cornerback, but he's kind of trending in the opposite direction as the wide receivers on Seattle. I think that's going to be a really, really key part of this game. Now, just circling back to the protection, on both sides of the ball, um, Seattle's actually outperformed Dallas in that uh, in that regard. They only have one offensive line that in the last six games has allowed over 10 pressures, and they're getting some really, really nice play, uh, especially on the interior. Dallas, on the other hand, has three offensive lines linemen that have given up 10 pressures in the last six games. That might come into play here, and I think just the fact that Russell Wilson is a better pure thrower than Dak Prescott, I think this game is going to come down to what happens on the outside. Uh, Both teams have, you know, good slot receivers, but they also have better slot corners, so I I think this game is going to come down to those white hot receivers and what these two quarterbacks can do with it. And if you're asking me which guy I take, I'm taking Russell Wilson every time. These two teams are more evenly matched than you think, Um, but I'm going to take Seattle. And we do have one bold prediction for it. Comes from uh, Sean from Seabeck, who is a Seahawks fan, so thank you for participating. Uh, But he said the Seahawks-Cowboys game will feature nine field goal attempts combined. Uh, League average is 4.1 per game. That's a hilarious prediction. I absolutely love it. It really insinuates that both teams have had some like interesting red zone issues and that can really be a great equalizer, uh, in a game where Seattle right now seems like the better team, at least considering just the the most recent few games. Um, but if both teams have, you know, significant red zone issues that could really equalize the two, I'm still taking Seattle, but it's an interesting way to look at the matchup. So, finally, we are going to talk about the Chicago-Philadelphia game. Unfortunately, the game that would have included the Vikings, they could have taken care of business at home, but I digress. Both of these teams have pretty consistent identities. You know, Mitch Trubisky, as a quarterback, is going to run around, beat you with his legs, and make up for deficiencies with his arm by improvising and scrambling on the ground and getting yards in key situations. We've saw him do it to the Vikings twice this year. And Philadelphia, they're gonna have Nick Foles. It doesn't look like Carson Wentz is gonna play in this one again. Um, they are very consistent with Nick Foles. I, I actually think they're kind of weirdly a better team with him, not because Nick Foles is a better quarterback, because he's not. Carson Wentz is very clearly a better quarterback than Nick Foles if you look at their careers like to date. But with, with Nick Foles in Philadelphia, they're, they're really confident in what Nick Foles can do, and they only ask him to do what he's capable of. So that really limits Philadelphia as an offense, uh, and going up against a really, really good Bears defense, that could present some problems, especially in Soldier Field. But Philadelphia, with Foles, is only going to ask him to do things he's good at, so Nick Foles is only going to... Be doing things he's comfortable with and therefore play very well. So I I would not be shocked to see this be one of those weird Nick Foles games where he throws like four touchdowns and he's amazing, uh, even against a Bears defense that's supposed to be able to crush him. Now on the other side of the ball, uh, in terms of protection, you know, Philadelphia is going to have to get pressure on Mitch Trubisky. We've talked a lot about like how to beat mobile quarterbacks and you basically have to play contain on the edges, which means you know, don't just pin your ear back and run, ears back and run at him. He'll dodge you and evade you and then roll out to the side. You have to kind of keep your barrier up and you have to make it so that he can't escape your direction. You sack him then, and then you have to get pressure on the interior. The problem is Chicago's interior offensive line is on a tear right now. Specifically, Cody Whitehair, who in the last six games has given up two pressures, a whole two. To put that in perspective, Pat Elfline also at center Uh, gave up three times that just in the last game. So I think Philadelphia might struggle to put pressure on Mitch Trubisky, and that means that they're going to be able to work down the field with guys like, you know, Allen Robinson, and that could, you know, bode very well for Chicago. Um, On the other side of the ball... Alshon Jeffrey and uh, Kyle Fuller will be an interesting matchup to watch. Alshon Jeffrey in his revenge game, you know, Kyle Fuller has been a very good cornerback all season, but I think really uh, the safeties of Chicago have been on quite the tear. Even with Eddie Jackson missing games, his backups have actually played really well in the last few games, too. So if, if Eddie Jackson has to, you know, sit out snaps because he's still not fully healthy, that isn't really a problem for Chicago. So I think they'll be able to kind of stop Philadelphia from doing those Nick Foles things just because they're so good in coverage. Um, And I think one final matchup to watch is going to be Nelson Aguilar versus Sherrick McManus, uh, the slot corner who's playing the most for Philadelphia, or for Chicago, I'm sorry. I think that might be an opportunity for uh, Philadelphia to get some production against an otherwise... Like impenetrable Bears defense. So, this game's actually really close to me. I, I think Philadelphia is going to outplay what they've done over the course of this season just because they're going to do things that they're very confident and comfortable with in Nick Foles. And I think on defense, they are going to be up to like the tallest coverage task. But Mitch Trubisky has been excellent in beating teams in unorthodox ways this year. And for that reason, I'm taking Chicago. We do have one bold prediction for this game. Uh, it comes from Behind Skull. Thank you for participating, who says that Nick Foles throws for 350 and three touchdowns. And personally thanks Matt Nagy for not resting his starters. So uh that comes from a very tortured Vikings fan who is very sick of seeing <laughs> Nick Foles in the playoffs, I'm sure. Um, that name still triggers me too, my guy. So uh, that is going to do it for our Wild Card Weekend preview. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you guys all enjoy the games. I know it's really a bummer that the Vikings aren't involved in them, but it's the playoffs. Come on, this is like football Christmas. Let's have a good time. I'll see you guys all next week, and skull.